You're listening to the Accordion to Me podcast with Veronique Medrano. On this week's episode, we get to chat with Mexican-American Latinx author and translator David Bowles. David takes us on a wild adventure in his fight for equity in the literary publishing space. The creation of Dignidad Literaria and an in-depth understanding of what led to his highly publicized heated exchange with Oprah Winfrey. Some of you know, early in 2020, I was in an accident. The consequences that you have to live with after can be a lot. You can lose your car, you can lose work and therefore money. And you can of course be super injured and have huge hospital bills to pay. No bueno. So if like me, you've been the victim of an accident, you need a professional to help you get the care you need. In case of an accident, you need a lawyer to protect your rights and your wallet And you don't have to look any further than that simple phrase by going to the URL incaseofanaccident.com for a free consultation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if the person that suffered the accident wasn't you, but maybe it was your tia or your abuelita or something, don't worry. Everyone at In Case of an Accident speaks Spanish. They can even take messages through WhatsApp at 888-990-0911. So if you or a loved one have suffered through a horrible car accident like me, visit the team at incaseofanaccident.com for more help. Just don't forget to tell them that Veronique Medrano from Accordion to Me sent you. Hi, everybody. My name is Veronique, and you, of course, are on the Accordion to Me podcast with our special guest, David Bowles. He is author, translator, and online pop culture commentator from South Texas. He has award-winning titles, amazing books, um, which include The Smoking Mirror and They Call Me Huero. He is currently writing Fregona. Thank you so much, David, for coming on to the Accordion to Me podcast. It is an honor and a pleasure. I cannot express to you how much cheesema has been going on that I just wanted to sit with you mm-hmm. and uh, and get some some hot chocolate and some pan dulce and just go through everything that's been going on. Because from the moment that I wanted to talk to you at the beginning of the year to right now, I'm like, oh, my God, where do we begin? Where do we begin, David? I know it's really, really hard. But yeah, no, it's it's also like just a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. I'm a big fan. And so this is just going to be a delight. And I like all the content you put. I mean, obviously, you're an incredible singer and and, and the music that you put out is great, but also just like intellectually fascinating and all your pop culture stuff. It's like really aligns with mine. And I'm like, wow, this, this is great, you know. Um, and we're both from the Valley and our interests kind of align. So it's cool. I and mean, it's nice to find people like that. So where exactly are you from the Valley or are you upper Valley, mid Valley or lower Valley? I'm mid Valley. I'm mid Valley. I'm definitely a mid Valley boy. Grew up in McAllen, graduated from PSJ, um, lived for a while in Westlaco as well. Um, and I live in Donna now. So definitely mid Valley. When I was growing up, I'm 51. So when I was growing up, Brownsville to me. I wasn't going to age you, sir. I was just going to leave it ambiguous. <laughs> I look relatively young uh, when I'm in, you know, in good spirits or whatever, and um, haven't been working too hard. <laughs> You're like when I'm in good spirits and good lighting. I look. Yeah. <laughs> I just get the little ring light right here pointed at my face. Um, in the '70s and '80s, to us in the Mid Valley, Browns will seem like this distant land, like far, far away, and we imagined like. There is colonial architecture, but we imagined it like this cobbled streets and, you know, arches and 
ya la gente es bien diferente que acá. Our, our <laughs> oh, <go>. my God. <laughs> and then, you know, and then, like, obviously, in the late 80s and 90s, like, everything grew together, and now Brownsville is, like, right down the road. And exactly. Teach classes down there all the time. You um, do. Yeah. You teach classes. So what classes are you currently teaching? Right now I'm teaching a, a creative writing class, like a graduate level creative creative writing class that's focusing on like world building and tying when writer, most of my students are Mexican-American. So when, when we're writing like speculative fiction, fantasy, horror, science fiction, whatever, how can we, rather than aping what other people have already done out there and, you know, what white men mostly have done, how can we like ground our writing in, you know, Mexican-American culture and in our communities and our values and, and things like that. And it's just stuff that doesn't occur to people, but that I've been working on for a long time and have thought through a lot. And so it, it's, it's a great class. And then I'm also teaching a class too for teachers on, it's also a graduate course on how to teach And it's really ironic that all this stuff is going on about like critical race theory, because it's like, how do you get middle school and high school students who don't really like reading excited about reading by using critical lenses, by getting them to like argue with and, and dig into a text and like question it and, and so forth. And, and then also, how do you how do you be more student centered in the text that you choose in your in your classroom? I will say one of my one of the experiences that I had and it's been interesting because I, I was in college and um I honestly, I knew that I wanted to do music, but I didn't want to study music. At a certain point in college, it became untenable for me to study music because everything here is super geared towards teaching. And I understand because there is a, a demand for teachers in this area, but it was just, I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to perform. So eventually it just, it ended up rubbing the wrong way when I ended up going into mariachi i went into mariachi and they took away my my music scholarship i remember your tea episode like about a year ago right when the when the tejano awards came out that you talked about oh man that's so disappointing that they would do that well, and mind you this was in college this was in college this was before i even like really went into tejano it was so weird because mind you the professors are all white the college professors are all white they're wanting you to do german and french and italian and all that and yet you know i'm asking you know to take mariachi as a course along with my other courses so i didn't yeah. remove anything but just because i wanted to do that as a performance aspect immediately removed my scholarship and that changed my trajectory into creative writing, writing editorially. But it's so interesting because what you're describing, I think I, I, many times I wish I had that because at the time, I think maybe I had taken, and there was only available, mind you, this was like 2010 and it is officially 2021. So 10 years ago when I was in freshman, sophomore year of college, There was one Mexican-American literature class, oh my God. one person teaching you about the basics of, you know, Mexican-American literature, which will always go back to Sandra, Oscar Casares, uh, Sandra Cisneros, sorry, I'll, I'll mention first and last name, Sandra Cisneros, Oscar Casares, for those who don't know, um, Oscar is from Bronzeville. Um, and he wrote, called yeah. yeah, yeah, he literally wrote a collection of stories called Bronzeville and, and a few other, other different, uh, I'm sorry, Marquez, I always mess up his name, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Thank yeah. you. Garcia Marquez and, you know, other authors, but it wasn't until college. 
And I'm really curious on your thoughts because for me, especially with the work that I do currently with grad school in information sciences on the library tract, building collections, I literally wept. I literally had a moment when I moved to San Antonio because I had lived there for three years and I saw their extensive collection of Mexican and Latinx literature that was funded by a big Mexican American family who has a franchise out there. And I saw it and I was just completely moved. But what are your thoughts in regards to introduction of these literatures? Because I feel like, I mean, you would, common sense would say you're on the border. You would see this more often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what, what have you experienced? Yeah, I mean, and in, in if if it was bad in 2010, it was a lot worse, as you imagine, in the 70s and 80s. It wasn't until I got to college at, at what the, at the time was Pan American University um, in 1988. Well, I guess it wasn't until 1989, like my second semester. I didn't have to take freshman English because of my ACT scores, but I was taking a sophomore world literature class. And in that class, it, world literature, mind you, we, we were reading House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. And it's the first time in my entire 19 years of life that I'd ever read anything written by a Mexican-American. And that's despite the fact that I went to school at Ben Milam Elementary in McAllen and then to Lincoln Junior High and then, you know, to various high schools because at that time then my parents divorced and I was like all over the place. Um, but graduated from PSJ and like I never read any work by any Mexican-Americans or any U.S. Latinx authors at all. And and when I was in college, I guess we read some stuff in translation by people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or, you know, Octavio Paz or whatever, but just like little sprinklings, no U.S. Latinx voices at all. So it was kind of horrifying to me. And then that same semester, I was taking a class, like an intro to anthropology class, in which we were we, we were studying things like dichos and recetas, y cuentos y leyendas, and then we also studied Aztec and Maya mythology. And I was like, wait, wait, wait the Aztecs and Maya, like. Why were we never taught any of this in school? Because we were taught like Roman mythology and Greek mythology and Norse and even some Egyptian and so forth. But never like we're like fucking we're right next to. Pardon me. Uh, I tend to get a little excited about this kind of stuff. We're freaking right next to Mexico. Y nada, no nos I mean, I just want you to know that that if you say it, we're not going to do the SpongeBob thing and like go ee. Like that's not going to happen. You're just going to people will hear you just people as you are. They're going to like noted, noted children's author David Bowles says the f word. <laughs> I mean, if if somebody will, somebody will always find something to complain about. But you see my you see my Twitter feed. I don't hold back. So um, <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things that like set me on the path that that I eventually got on, which is you know I felt robbed. I felt you know horrified, and 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 I started like asking family members, and I asked like my grandmother Garza, my you know my grandfather Manuel Garza, and all these people like. When you were in school, did you like no? And I just realized that like it's not there was nobody I could get mad at. I can't leave up pig at. I mean, who there was nobody to get, to yell at us <laughs> because it had been like centuries of erasure in Mexico and in the U.S. of of these really important things. But yeah, you, the 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 system of education in the U.S. is like deliberately set up to lift up a particular canon because it's 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 about trying to craft citizens and workers and things like that. It's a very capitalist corporate. It's very Anglo. Very it's Anglo. very Anglo-driven, and yeah. I'll even add and add to your dissertion here that when I saw that collection and I was going through it, you know, 
a lot of us have this, everybody, I'm sure, like if we were to put a percentage, I would definitely feel, I mean, I could be wrong. This would have to be a statistician, but just looking and speaking with people and speaking with kids and speaking with people my age, easily 90% of people do not have any touch with U.S. Latinx or Mexican American writers. They have no clue outside of Sandra Cisneros. And there's no dogging her. It's just literally, that's it. That's what's, that's what's even allowed in the high school. Like, that's it. Things are changing, though, Veronique. And, and you know, I, I feel like I was part of this wave of Mexican-American authors. So, you know, basically what happened is I went down this rabbit hole, started studying the roots of, like, my family, you know, cultura and, like, folkloric tradition, whatever, in Mexico and, and, the, and colonial New Spain and the roots of that, like, in pre-Columbian Mesoamerica and... And eventually studied, studied, started studying Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs, that is still spoken today by a, a bunch of Nahuas, um, an ethnic minority in Mexico. And just trying to find a sense of myself, because I knew who I was. You, you grew up like Tejano, you know, Mexican-American in the valley, and you know who you are. But you're kind of, you're like, you're in what Gloria Saldua calls Nepantla, right? You're in this in-between place, in this liminal space. And no, it is neither the ni the ni right? You know, and so I wanted to like root my identity a bit more, and 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 on the other side of that, working as a teacher uh, with middle school students who didn't want to read what was in the textbook, they didn't they didn't connect with the canonical white writing that was in there. Started, I started bringing in what little I could find of Mexican American writers, but also retelling like my grandmother Garza stories in short story form and teaching students how to do this ethnographic work of, you know, vete a tu comunidad o pues, con tus abuelos, ask them to tell you the stories, record them and rewrite them as only you can in your own voice. Right. And, um, that became the basis of my first book, which is like a short story collection called The Seed. And it took me forever to get it published because in the first place, short story anthologies are really hard to sell. Nobody at the time wanted to buy anything that was meant for Mexican-American teens. Like They're like, Mexican-American teens don't read. Why the fuck would we buy that? And I mean, that literally it was the stuff that editors and agents would tell me. So like it was a long struggle until I finally found an indie press that published it. And, and then, you know, I published a few more books with university presses and indie presses until my book, The Smoking Mirror, which is came out in 2015, which is like um, a Mexican-American, like Percy Jackson kind of story, fantasy series uh, featuring two 12-year-old twins from Donna, Texas, where I live, who discover their Nahuales, their shapeshifters, um, and they have to use their powers to rescue their mom, who's been kidnapped and taken to the Aztec underworld. And that won an award from the American Library Association, and that like really changed things for me. But there was like a wave starting a little bit after 2010, so about 2012, you started seeing more and more Latinx uh, books, for mainly for teens, um, you know, getting traction and being published and winning awards. Um, and the same thing also for like Black Americans and, and Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders and Indigenous people as well. There was like a, there's been in the past decade, this like surge of, of representation, uh, like an understanding that all the lip service to diversity and, and so forth that had been going on for 30 years before that was just bullshit. And it was time for us to go not just wait anymore, but to start like banging on the doors and pushing our way in. And so, and that's what eventually began to happen. Um, 
uh, as more and more people of color were hired inside of publishing um, and gotten positions where they could be acquiring books, it just like things pressure was coming to bear on the publishing industry from multiple uh-huh. points until things began to change. Now we are like still way, way far away from where we need to be. And just in terms of representation, we're still, I mean, when you take all books published in the U S every year, fewer than 6% of those books are written by people from communities of color. Can you imagine that fewer than 6% when we make up almost 50% of the population now? That just seems nuts to me. It's mind boggling. It's deliberate. It's systemic. It's systematic. The exclusion of these people, um, you know, our people from like 18% of the U.S. population is Latinx. And, uh, you know, fewer than 1% of the books published every year is ri- are, are written by by Latinx authors. And just think about Hollywood the same way. Like every couple of years you get, you know, In the Heights or, or Coco or whatever. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. like we should be having fucking movies coming out every three or four months. There should be like two or three Latinx movies coming out. Like we. Well, I mean, I see like three to four months every like like there's a new heist movie. There's a new like. A, a new Anglo person, you know, making a heist, a new Anglo person just scamming somebody. Like, I mean, I mean, as funny as it sounds, I mean, there's literally so much representation with an Anglo lens and yeah. yet so little representation for anything else. What's so amusing is there's so much of it. And yet, like once there starts being just a teensy bit more from people of color and from, especially from women of color, then like, particular contingent of white men lose their shit and they're like oh well i guess there's no room for white men anymore we're like motherfucker you're still 90 percent of the of the entertainment (laughs) what are you and then especially like you're you're talking about you know the 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 demographic of of people that are people of color that are latinx hispanic um puerto ricano latino asian american african american or you know um, black people and we over represent in ticket buying period yeah, people yeah, if you i mean yeah. just as just on just on on just studies of hispanic mexican latinx people just if you looked at just that pocket we over represent just imagine adding the rest of it it would still yeah. be more than what what's out there i think it's potentially 25% but that's still a lot that's 25% more than just regular then, then who they're actually pitching this for and who the story is about. As the executives at, in Hollywood and the, edit, the, the main editors in, um, in the publishing world, because all these people are white and ostensibly liberal, right? They're, they're not progressive, but they're liberal. And so they think the white liberal mindset is like, I'm a good person. Why are you coming after me? When like last year, you know, I co-founded Dignity Teradia. This is the, this activist hashtag and movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went to New York City and we sat down with like all of the head hunters at Harper uh, at not Harper Collins. Oh my God, <laughs> sorry Harper Collins. I know you read my books. But, at <laughs> but before we get into that, because Dignidad Literaria, the hashtag, uh-huh. if if you guys go on there um, and you're listening, you guys can look it up online. Um, was started in response to something that occurred in the literary world. It, it didn't just like, oh, we it typed it. No, um, no. And, no, no, this was in, in, in response to what, was this this year or was it last year? I'm trying to remember when it was because my years are blending. Right as the pandemic was starting. So end of 2019 is all the buildup for this book, American Dirt. Now we've just been talking about how hard it is to get published and all the gatekeepers and so forth. 
And one of the things that we haven't mentioned is that even if you do get published, you're getting paid less. Like the advances that are given to just starting white writers sometimes are, you know, they're, they're usually six figures. So somewhere between a hundred thousand uh, and, and more for like, um, kind of like big name. So what you're saying is I should change my author name to a white yeah. last name. Yes. You, <laughs> That's what you're telling me. You did not have the fortune of having like one white parent like I did. So you don't, you have Medrano. I don't know. What can we change Medrano to? What would work? Um, Manchego. <laughs> Manchego. <laughs> Veronique Manchego, I am the cheapest. <laughs> like I don't know, it's going to be some kind of like weird erotic fiction or something like that. I don't know. Why did you? Why do you call me out? What is wrong <laughs> with you, David? <laughs> Maybe weird, like food-based erotica. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> I don't even get yes, David is so yes. mean. He doesn't even allow me to at least get a children's book in. He goes, "Nah, your your white I, name is is right. erotica." But because Manchego, I mean, I don't know. Anyways, so you we have the struggle where you know most Latinx authors get advances that are like that are you know either three or uh, you know I don't know four or five figures, so somewhere between. And the marketing is shit. Oh yeah, exactly. So you you get you get an advance of between a thousand and I don't know what thirty five thousand dollars, but the, obviously the PR is not there. It's not none of the same like mechanisms that make a bestseller are there. So this book, American Dirt, by Janine Cummins, who up to that point had just always told people she was Irish American, and then suddenly I mean that's a name that would write some erotic fiction. I'm just saying Janine Cummins. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. The titles just write themselves, right? So, um, poor Janine. <laughs> American Cochinera <laughs> is, the, is the Spanish translation for her book. Okay, oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll keep. We'll, we'll be yes, back cochinada. on track. So there was a <laughs> cochinadas americanas. That's got to be her follow up. That's got to be follow up. Yeah, so, oh my god, she needs to. Like she pulls like a Puerto Rican grandmother out of like thin air or whatever. And I, I don't, I don't doubt her. She'll fine. I'm not going to ever second guess someone or, or genealogy know, or, shame. You're yeah. not going to genealogy yeah, yeah. shame. If, someone if, somebody, who if someone says, looks, if someone decides I have Latinx heritage and I'm going to like, I want to live in that. And I want to begin to delve into that and be more that's fine. Go for it. You know, um, I don't have anything necessarily against that, um, but it's it's the the weaponizing of it in the way that happened that's really disappointing. So her proposal is in you know you usually write a proposal a few first few chapters it's picked up by Flatiron an imprint of Macmillan that publishes Oprah Winfrey's books, um, and they pay her a huge advance and they sell all the film rights and so and all the translation rights. So she basically. You know, walks away from that deal with like three million dollars. It's an insane amount of money. I mean, is that movie still going to be going forward or did they just because that thing like as soon as soon as it popped is as soon as it fizzled. Like I heard nothing. The book was a bestseller for three months in a row. I still didn't hear nothing about it because they knew they needed to be quiet about it. But what happened was well, I'll get to it in a second. There's a reason that it was a bestseller. And it's like the same reason that Trump was elected and the same reason that People are denying that January 6th was an, an insurrection and blah, blah, blah. blah. Just, they Trump-sized it. Yeah, exactly. So what happens is Macmillan lines all of its resources up, all its PR uh, tools. It gets Oprah Winfrey to select the book. She hasn't even read it yet, to select it for her book club. Um, 
they have all their connections in media. They get write-ups about it, like praising it. They line up people like Sandra Cisneros, um, and she and I had a like, pretty hard conversation about this afterwards. And I think that she regrets to some extent, like having backed it up. Although she's not really able to publicly retract herself, it's just an awkward position to be in. But you know, all these people saying, "Oh yeah, it's a great book," and, and you know, Erika Sanchez and other people, um, other. Oh my God, Selma Hayek. That one was a shocker to me when Selma came out and said, oh, yeah, this is a great book. And then immediately followed, literally immediately within 24 hours or less. I'm going to say that if you guys did not see that posting, literally, she posted the photo of her with the book. And she says, oh, you know, like the little Instagram BS of, oh, you should really read this. This is part of Oprah's book club. I've read it. I really like it to then immediately retracting that statement and going, I didn't read it. <laughs> I did not. Nope. Wait, I didn't read it. Wait, I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> it was, it's one of those tough situations. So, so they lined all that stuff up and it was just like a, a monster. And, but there had been a bunch of us who had been paying attention going, okay, this is a book that's about supposedly about a woman escaping like narco violence in Mexico and coming to the border or whatever. And it's being written by somebody who isn't Mexican, who isn't Mexican American, who hasn't never lived in Mexico, doesn't live on the border. You know, you all the like red flags go up, right? And, you, uh, and you're like, mm-hmm. she doesn't have the, the bona fides to do this. That doesn't mean, and and I, I want to make it clear, that doesn't mean in my mind that she can't write it or doesn't have the right to write it. I, that's totally fine. People, you know, people are allowed to write what they want to write, but you, I think you have an obligation if you're going to write about something that's not in your lane to really do a, a good job of getting close to the people in that community and living among them. And, and just, you know, if you're going to write a story about them, you, you need to be closer to them than she, she got. So, Advanced review copies started going out, and a really, really awesome writer, Miriam Gurba, who lives in California, Long, uh, Long Beach, right? Or close to Long Beach, read it and did this like scathing review. And she, she had been hired to do the review for uh, uh, one magazine, but they were like, You don't say anything positive. We need you to add something positive. And she's like, I have nothing positive to say about this pile of shit. And so they were like, Well, you know, we, have to, we have to terminate the contract. So they paid her the. The, the I can't remember what they call it. It was like a cancellation fee. And then she published it elsewhere and it went viral and people just started attacking her for like not liking the book. It's like this, like you, you dare to Oprah has knighted this book. She's anointed. It as like the perfect book. Like Oprah, like literally said it wasn't until I read this book that I really saw Central American refugees as people. You're like, really? Like, how old are you again? How long have you been in this? How long have you been like advocating for what the fuck is wrong with you? But you have to look at, I mean, I love Oprah for what she stands for in journalism and for, for the interviewing. But if you think about who she's interviewed and who have been the main guests and what topics she's covered, it doesn't surprise me. She always straddled the line, but she was still Anglo accepted, Anglo leaning. Yes, she did acting and things like, you know, in the color purple and in other things that expressed her African-Americanness and, you know, her her blackness. But if you think about 
who she's interviewed. Has she interviewed a lot of African-Americans during the height of her career? Did she interview a lot of people of color during the height of her career? You look at it overall, no, she really didn't. And she's part of that like rich liberal Democrat group that really don't like progressives because progress like progressives are like eat the rich and they're and they're like, but we are the rich. I mean, they're they're the bad rich over there on the GOP side. Eat them and leave us alone. We're like, no, you're all I mean, it, wealth itself is the problem. Is what they're like, you know what? We're going bad. We're so sorry. <laughs> you should not eat us. <laughs> like, like they, they'll yeah. find some our, reason. Our expiration date has gone by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Caducamos. We're not. It's going to be nasty. Um, exactly. So all of that was there, and you know, I was retweeting Medium's thing and like trying to fight against people who were saying horrible, cruel things. She got like death threats all the time. It was just bad. And then a friend of mine in Austin got a hold of the ARC, a digital copy of it, and so I drove up and like read it on her tablet, and then I wrote a review of it as well. And then, and then I started like getting attacked. And this is now January, mid January of 2020. That's when uh, Roberto Lovato con- contacted Medium and me and said, hey, you know, what we ought to do is to take this and pivot away from Janine in the specific book to the problem of representation of, Latin- uh, of Latinx people. Because what's, the problem isn't that Janine wrote this book and that it's been published. That's perfectly fine. The problem is that uh, this huge chunk of resources have been given to this one goddamn woman who's not even from this culture. When you could have, with the money I spent, you could have you could have given contracts to fifty Latinas, fifty Chicanas, fifty Mexicanas to write stories that would have been own voices, stories that would have emerged from their own lived experience, that would have told you know a story that needed to be told, and not through this white gaze. So why do you feel that Anglo-leaning publishing companies continue to create books like American Dirt? with that gaze with those people at the forefront like they have they have yeah. somebody that looks because if you think about it and this is this is not disparaging as to what she looks like but she looks soft and delicate and you know and and there, there's a certain look to a person when you know that like oh my God, they're being mean to her like please don't but like those are the exact same people like it, if that makes sense yeah, no, I don't know if you saw the Oprah special because that, that was another thing is that, um, even, you know, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but even after we, you know, had to sit down with Macmillan and, and kind of enforce them in that meeting to agree to certain terms. And then we were able to, to and Oprah's people were on the phone in that meeting and so forth, even after all that. And we went down to, to the park where they did that Occupy Wall Street and we had our press conference and there was all this, you know, like. A lot of people were like relieved that you know a publishing company was a, was admitting that they had a problem and was dedicating themselves to fixing it. Even after that, Oprah didn't want the three of us to be on her show because we were not going to let her just get away with what you've just been talking about, which is like this little like song and dance and like um, let's be nice and in like both sidesism and and what aboutism that she does all the time. We were going to confront her, and so they brought other people. People that I admire, but people who are going to be less strident and less in her face. And even with those people who were being a lot nicer to Janine than we would have been had we been on the stage with her, Janine was still all like, like you know, demure like and looking down. Yeah, and mousy and stuff like that. So people would be like, look at the brown women attacking the white. Like the poor little white woman. Yeah, who, who's like being berated by these, 
you know, these vicious Latinas who, you know, you know, the whole game that's played by the whole Karen class, right? It comes from a space of, there's a lot of words, aggressive, overbearing, like there's all these, these really negative leaning words. And and I've experienced it myself dealing with, with publishing and everything else where that's the angry brown or, you know, the angry black woman trope, but that's used on women of color. Like, like if you're mad and you are not white, then you are other. And it already, it already creates a problem because (laughs) hello, of course I'm not white. I am very Brown. You put me next to a white person. I definitely stick out here in the Valley. I don't, but (laughs) anywhere else, you know, I stick out like a sore thumb. And so, so before we get too ahead of ourselves, you, you did the Dignidad Literaria, and I, yeah. I, I want to go in depth as to what happened, because you're saying, this is the first I've heard of it. I don't recall this ever being put out to the press, anything of the sort, saying that Oprah's people or anyone associated with that whole bigger aspect of the debacle, because it was already a problem, but Oprah's influence in the situation from me just looking the outside in made it bigger. Because she wouldn't retract her statement saying, you know what, this isn't, you know, this isn't great. She, she le- actually leaned into the Anglo lens yep. and that's why we got what we got. So I'm curious, you know, starting from the Dignidad Literaria, so he reaches out to you and then what happens? So we send a letter to, uh, like an email basically, to Bob Miller, who's the head of Flatiron, he was at the time the, the the head editor of Flatiron, the imprint of Macmillan, saying, you know, we'd, we'd like to have a conversation with you. Um, we think that fighting it out on social media isn't the most productive way of, like, affecting change. And, like, we're, you know, that book is our, it's, it's published, it's done. I mean, you money's been paid, every, you know, whatever. I mean, we need to talk about what it's an example of or, or what it is, you know, um, you know, symptomatic of. And so we can get at the, the the root causes. And so they were like, yes, within a few hours, he was like, can you guys come up beginning of February? Let's sit down. Let's have a meeting. And so, you know, we did. We flew up and it was like right as they were quarantining people for like three days that were coming off the planes because it was ju- just when the pandemic was beginning to like to flare up right in the beginning of February. And we, we went in and, and we had this meeting for, for, for two hours. And the, the beginning of the, at the beginning of the meeting, Don Weisberg, who, who's the, the head of Macmillan, said, look, just so everybody understands, no decisions are going to be made today. We're not going to agree to anything. We're just here to listen to you. And we said, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you, you're not going to sit down with the four of us because we also, it was the three of us and then a representative of a, like a, a legal organization that provides support um, for the Nidadi and, and a lot of other uh, groups. And you're not going to sit down with four Latinx people who are fighting for their community and just like blow smoke up our asses. We're like, we're, we're, we want, we're not, you don't want us to go down to the park for our press conference and to tell them that you were intransigent and refused to, to budge. So it, it was a tough conversation. And so it was all these executives of Macmillan and then like all of the, the crew of Flatiron, all of the people that work in that, in that imprint. And then on the phone were, were people from O Magazine, from Oprah's book club, and then from the Oprah Winfrey like show. Like, so there were like three different representatives of Oprah on the phone. 
And we talked about it. And at first, they wanted to tone police us and like set the the baseline for the conversation, or whatever. And we just refused to allow them to do that. And, th- and th- this is just my advice to people who who want to do this kind of work. Like you can't let, no matter how powerful they are, you can't let them set the terms because the minute they set the terms, you've lost. You have to impose your terms on them. I'm curious because some people may who are listening may not understand what tone policing is. You sure. and I have experienced it, I'm sure, many times, but. I think giving an example, because I never realized what tone policing was until I was working my first corporate job with a newspaper. And I didn't realize the type of conversations that were being had. And I didn't realize the environment I was in until I was out of there. Yeah. And th- this happened again and again and again. So how would you describe tone policing in a, in a scenario, in a, in a situation? I'll, and I'll give an example from that meeting in a second. But like like a typical thing, we were just now talking about this, the, the perceived stridency of women of color. And so like my wife, Angelica, um, she has a way of like she's... <laughs> Got like this really no nonsense Mexican mom kind of you know I mean no me vas a jugar de la boca pendejo kind of like attitude right so when she's <laughs> interacting with people she can come across as like really stern and strong and, and and like insistent and she's not she doesn't couch things in in like polite ways she's just she's not being rude but she's just being direct and equivocal about things and people white people then they're these are the people who are usually tone policing want for women to behave like in these ways that we've been talking about demur you know kind of deferential polite humble. Smiling, humble kinds of ways and if you don't if you speak in a way that like breaks any of those norms then they say hey now you shouldn't talk to me that way or ma'am we need to watch your language that, that kind of stuff and like you tell my wife She's like, chinga tu madre, no voy a cuidar mi lenguaje, tú quién eres para decir For those who do not understand what he's saying, uh, if you if you don't understand Spanish, his wife pretty much tells him, F your mom. Yeah, yeah. F your mom. Yeah. F your like, dog, F your cat, like, whatever. Yeah. Like, of course, but you like the, 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 all the numbers are funny. Yeah, so um so in that meeting, Miriam who'd been getting death threats repeatedly. Um, yeah, and, I remember I mean, one of the things that Flatiron had done was they had canceled the book tour because they said there were there were threats against the author. There, there we did a extensive investigation. There were no threats against the author at all. There, there were threats against a particular venue, and mostly the threats were like we're going to show up and we're going to make a big scene or whatever. There was no like threats of violence or th- and there were no death threats. Medium started talking about the death threat she had received and like reading them and like getting emotional and you know her tears coming to her eyes and like you know like raising her voice and the you know the men Bob and Don wanted to, to they were like you know we need to keep this you know professional and we were like no you're not going to tone police Medium she's you let her express what she's feeling because this your reaction to our complaints about what you've done have created this like this wave of trolls that are attacking her and you need to experience that you can't silence her or try to tone police her and then as typical when you push back they started getting a little hot under the collar and bob miller was like well our author also got death threats and the people and all the women who work under him who were, who were already beginning to align with medium were like, no, Bob, that's not true. 
and we need to listen to her. This is horrible what's happened to her. And so it was, that was that pivotal moment was when everything changed, when they realized they were not going to be able to control us and that they needed to just cede control of the meeting to us. Because, you know, otherwise they were going to have a really, really ugly situation on their hands. And, and that is that's the kind of thing that has to happen in these kinds of meetings. We are raised in school and, and have Mexican-American culture and so forth erased from our curriculum. And and when we're like taught in little rows and, and we have to raise our hands and all that stuff, all that stuff is about imposing strict blind obedience to authority, to white authority um, when it comes before you and to fight against white hegemony, white power that oppresses people of communities of color. You cannot agree to that. You have to, you have to break with it. You have to cause a rupture. And that makes some people uncomfortable because they've bought into the idea of being the good Hispanic, right? Don't get, don't call attention to yourself. Just let's just like live our lives peacefully. But like, that's not the way you affect change though. To affect change, you have to like get up in people's face and make them uncomfortable because only in that place of discomfort are they going to look for a way to create comfort again by ceding to your demands, right? Like you have to make them uncomfortable. Um, They're not out of the goodness of their hearts. They're not going to like give the reins of power over to you. They're not going to like start taking millions of dollars. No, not at all. And start investing them in communities of color. They're not going to. You have to make them have no choice but to do it. I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of campaigns are unsuccessful is because they play by the rules. You can't play by the rules. If you're going to overturn a system that is unfair, you can't do it by agreeing to the system. You like have to say, no, the system's wrong. I'm not going to do what the system says. I'm going to come into the system and show you inside the system how fucked up the system is. And I mean, and uh, it's dangerous work. It's dangerous work for an author to be doing that kind of thing. Like I, like all three of us, Roberto, Medium, and I have careers as authors. And we, you know, um, Roberto and I have books with major publishers. Um, I have books with Penguin Random House. And, and the people at Penguin Random House are actually like really, really great and very understanding um, and accepting and even encouraging of my social activist kind of stuff. And I have books at HarperCollins as well, and then some smaller presses. But you're in this position where you're like, I'm literally playing Russian roulette with my writing career. This could blow up. I mean, like, um, you know, if Macmillan decides to paint me as a villain here or to try to destroy my career, you know, um, <laughs> Don Weisberg, who is the CEO of Macmillan, and if he's listening right now, he, he neither of us likes the other, so it's fine. We, we both know that we don't like each other. But he's also friends with editors at Penguin Random House, and they like, they all know each other. I mean, it's not a big industry, like in in the in the popular sector. I guess that's the way I would describe it. Like bigger publishers, they know each other. One knows the other, knows the other, knows the other. It's the same way in the Tejano industry. There's so few, like Hollywood, all that stuff. You know, it, entertainment is a very small circle. It's not as big as I think a lot of us believe it is. Everybody knows each other. People know who the other one is. Given that, was there, I mean, you're you're describing what was happening there. And at that point, did anyone from the Oprah camp you know, because you're saying there's three different entities that are actually in this meeting, you know, make any other comments or, or concerns or anything like that, or they just kind of stayed out of it and just kind of listened to what was happening. Yeah, for the most part, they listened. There was one point where they 
where they pushed back on something, but they were like mistaken. To be honest with you, I can't remember what it was, but they spoke up to try to correct something we had said when we were like, um, actually, no, this correction you're trying to offer up is incorrect. And this is why we're right. And then they fell silent after that. But they clearly took the contents of that meeting back to Oprah because we were not invited. Although we repeatedly emailed her and emailed her people when we heard that she was going to have this meeting and she wasn't announcing the date or yeah, no date, no time. It's like suddenly did it out in the desert. Like it's, it's so, Oh my God. It was so weird. So gross. Well, it was, it was posturing. It was like, okay, was you know, border, like border. Okay. Border desert. Maybe like, yeah. like there's always, there's always a posturing. There's always a, a look to what's happening or what's going on. And I mean, given the meeting that you had and then with them on the call, to what we eventually got as the production. And that's what I'm going to call it because that's what it was. It was a, it was a production of, you know, print, social and video that was eventually released, took everything that you guys said in that meeting and tilted it so that they knew how to kind of attempt because yeah, it, it was were, an attempt to combat whatever you guys had said in that meeting. That's right. I mean, and she even called our names out. She even said, you know, she said Miriam Gurba, David Bowles, uh, Roberto Lovato. She said her names. I even, like, I remember taking like a, cause I was watching it and I paused it and I took a screenshot. Of the closed caption. The first and only time we'll ever hear Oprah Winfrey say my name out loud. Um, even if she, they have said it during those months repeatedly in private with lots of curse words attached to it. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It was my, whatever. Um, I, I don't want to say my 15 minutes of fame because I, I like to think of myself as being relatively famous for, for a Valley boy or whatever. But, um, yeah. um I mean, but it, but was, it was like, just kind of oh, in Oprah, that situation. It's like, woo, you know, <laughs> she said my name, she wasn't happy, but she said my name. <laughs> as she was saying it. Like oh it really is some kind of like, you know, ancient Aramaic curse or something like that. It's kind of funny. Well, because I'm, I'm curious because it was really, the production was practically positioning that the trauma theatrics that are the Anglo lens of any type of person of color's story. And I say, and I put story in air quotes because this didn't come, this work of fiction did not come from someone's actual life story. It didn't no. come from anybody's life story. It was it was literally a work of fiction that was yeah. almost touted as, you know, this traumatic theater of, you know, true understanding when how can you say that a work of fiction can be anything like that? And, you know, and there are all kinds of ironies um, that go along with what you're saying, Veronique. Um, like the main character essentially feels like a white woman. And she's, I mean, she's a light-skinned Mexican woman from Acapulco who's upper middle class runs a bookstore and she's not the typical refugee. I mean, like Janine literally chose a person who's going to be a lot like her readers, white middle class, whatever, because ostensibly what she was doing with this book was to try to reach people who wouldn't read a book written by a Mexican or Mexican American, but would read a book written by a white woman um, so that they could see the refugee problem. So she basically positioned herself as a white savior. And that's what all this is. It's about, Again, like I say, white liberals making themselves feel better. Um, I don't know if you, there's like a, a little TikTok video that I saw on Twitter today where a white woman is like, 
if you want to have good allies, the first thing you need to do is treat us with some respect. You can't start off the conversation by calling us colonizers and then it was like I mean, like a needle kind of thing. And then this this, <laughs> this uh, black scholar, I can't think of her name right now, um, but comes in and she's like, that, folks, is another example of white supremacy, of white racism. And she goes on to like just take it apart, you know, about this, all of that being like, you need to be nice to us. We will be your allies as long as you're nice to us and you don't make us feel bad about our, you know, participation participating in white hegemonic systems of oppression, blah, blah, blah. And, and I mean, that's what all this is about. This is like the publishing industry, like the literary, like liberal part of it is about making, you know, people on the left feel better about themselves, even though they are, you know, participants in the system that continues to oppress and erase people. Like, you know, our, our conversation earlier about, you know, books for children, I mean, things have gotten better, but it's still like really lamentably bad. And you think about what happens to a Mexican-American kid going through school and never seeing themselves reflected in any of the literature they read, but only but seeing like a white identity mirrored back at them all the time. They will internalize the sense that their identity, their their language, their culture, and their customs, their their familia, and, like all of those things, those don't matter to like academic conversations in the United States and white kids in those classrooms are going to internalize the notion that their lives are what matters, that their concerns, their culture, their language, their viewpoint, their, their viewpoint that's what matters. That's what is the important thing in conversations. And so when they don't see Mexican-Americans or black people or Asian-Americans or any or indigenous people around them, it doesn't occur to them that there's a problem. They're like, well, they were missing all, you know, in the, all the literature that I read and all textbooks, you know, why would I even blink an eye at it happening in the real world? And it's just a way of keeping us out of the conversation. So, of course, you don't want to be left out of the conversation. You You want to be part of it. Given that you've written these books that do have, you know, a more... Mexican American Latinx lens. What mm-hmm. is your first recollection of seeing your own culture? Something that you resonated a little bit better with, and that just kind of hit you in books or films that you can recall. What was the first one? Well, I mean, it, you know, it happened. It happened in films first. Um, like in the eighties, there were you know there were you know films that didn't you know, maybe weren't the greatest thing in the world, but you know. Um, in eighties, early nineties, you had things like American me and stand and deliver. And, you know, that admittedly were often trying to sensationalize like negative aspects, films like La Bamba also that, you know, obviously Richie Valance is being played by somebody who's not Mexican American, but most of the other cast was Latinx. And, um, those, those are the places where you see it first. I didn't see it in books until I got to college. And, you know, frankly, until I read a house on mango street. But after that, then I began to actively seek it out because, Basically, the way it was is you had to you had to find it. You had to know that it was missing from your life. You had to recognize that, and then you had to go after it because it was there, but you had to find it because it wasn't going to be given to you. That was one of the things that set me on this path to wanting to be because I want, always wanted to be a writer. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a storyteller and and so forth. And, and when I was in high school, I was like, 
I'll be the you know the next Ernest Hemingway or whatever nonsense. But um, you're gonna be the next Mexican Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> the Mexican, the Mexican American Ernest Hemingway is right. And um, pero nada. Um, I ended up you know seeing kids were suffering. I had suffered as a kid, and kids were suffering by not being not having exposure to this kind of stuff, not seeing their lives centered in books and textbooks, not seeing our communities and and our identities as worthy of being written about, worthy of being talked about, of worthy of being part of the academic conversation. And I just wanted to be part of the change. So things are different now, but there are still plenty of teachers, Mexican-American teachers. I am the coordinator of the English education program, UTRTV. Anybody who's getting certified in, in English language arts for or like sixth through twelfth grade is gonna, or fourth through twelfth grade is coming through my hands. Like maybe not literally, but um, <laughs> I grapple with this all the time. I have to like deprogram them because they just. I mean, they're English majors, so they love usually, you know, classical canonical literature. But I'm like, you're you're, you're not teaching English majors. If you're teaching middle school and high school, you're teaching just like normal people who are just going to go out and like live their lives and be musicians or lawyers or or clerks at a bank or who knows what. They're not English majors. You, what we want to do is your job is not to teach them the canon. Your job is to turn them into lifelong thinkers and readers and writers because life is better when you're able to grapple with big ideas with these tools. And the best way to do that is with literature that connects with you, literature that's relevant to you. That connects. Yeah. And obviously we want to have students to read more than just Mexican-American literature, but if they're not at least reading Mexican-American literature, I mean, that's going to be the starting point for Mexican-American yeah. students, literature in which they see themselves reflected. So, I mean, so, you know, there's now a pretty good body and not so much for adults. It's, we're still really, really struggling in the adult market, but for teens. And, and why children, do you think that is? Why, why do you think it's a little bit easier to, because I've seen that too. I've built stuff and I've actually had really extensive conversations with libraries, given the degree path that I'm on and with the professors at, in a school that mind mm -hmm. you is in an area that is Anglo, that is predominantly Anglo, honestly, productive conversations over the fact that people of color are not represented at all in, yeah. in past the teen young adult to that's kind of where we'd put it right pretty much young adult literature and after that you know we're kind of grasping at straws it, yeah and or it's very it's there i'm not saying it's not there because i have picked up some of those books but they're on indie publishers that's right. so they don't have the same funding like you're pretty much finding them at a half price books you're finding them in um gently used bookstores because, because somebody has it that's right, because they don't have the distribution model. I, I started one of the things that I did, you know, in and amongst all this when I was starting my writing career was to start a small local press. It still exists. It's run by Edward Vidaure, the the former uh, McAllen uh, poet laureate. It's called Flower Song. Hey, Edward. <laughs> I was about to say, Edward's probably going to hear this now. Hello, Edward. <laughs> and so, um, and I mean, and they do a great job putting out books, but it's it's a it's a micro press. So they don't have. In order to sign with a, a distributor, you have to have literally thousands of copies of the books in a warehouse. That's, that's what distributors want. You can't be printing them on demand. They want you to have the physical books there ready to ship. Boom. Um, and it costs a lot of money to just for indie presses to move from that micro press 
print on demand to like being distributed through one of the larger distributing um, chains requires an investment of thousands upon thousands of dollars. People just don't have the funds for it. What would you think is, you're saying thousands and thousands of dollars. What's your estimate? Just so that people can understand the difference between, because uh, for me, I'm going to tell you like mine is like, okay, a thousand or so, because I, I helped push the release of a, of a book called Papito and the Squeeze Box by Teresa Morales. That's and- right, yeah. Really little children. Yeah. yeah, that was that was off of my little like indie publishing, um, you know, and and investment that I made. But like that's that's just a few thousand. It's still a lot, mind you. I'm not saying that a few thousand is something that's easy to get by. But no, that no, was a no, few no. thousand. When you're looking at a bigger publisher, what numbers have you heard of or seen? Yeah, so I mean, like, uh, so a typical distributor is going to want you to have like about ten titles. They want they're going to want you to be publishing ten titles a year. Just to start with, you need to have 10 titles and you need to have, you know, somewhere between 500 to 1,000 copies of each one of those books in your warehouse to be able to ship out. So, you, I mean, you just run, run the numbers. It's, you know, if you have if you have 10 books, 500 copies each, it's 50,000, right? Isn't it? I'm not very good at math. Um, and then like, just <laughs> we'll just say it. yes. I mean, well, neither one of us went to school for math. No, we didn't. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you're gonna pull out your phone. Okay, so while you're doing that, so, so like 500, and, and you have, and there are 10 books. Okay, no, it's that's just 5,000. But to print those books, it's gonna cost you anywhere between five and ten dollars, depending on whether they're color, hardcover, or whatever. So if you just let's, let's go to the highest one and say 10, then that means an investment of fifty thousand dollars. So you. Having fifty thousand dollars of merchandise, and then tienes que tener donde guardar los pinches libros, right? You need to have a warehouse or something. Like, think about that five thousand books. That's a shit ton of books. Where are you going to put five thousand books, right? You can't just like stick them like in your closet. You, yeah, and um, and that needs to be there needs to be humidity controlled because books go bad really fast if you don't have humidity control. So, um, it, it's a significant investment. You know, anybody who wants to start. Um, a, like a traditional publishing firm is, is needs to have somewhere between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars to initially invest, and and most people obviously just don't have that kind of those funds. But to go back to your question, the reason we're in the situation we're in is is supply and demand. We live in a capitalist society. Children's books, in middle grade and, and YA books, by people from communities of color. There's been a, a, a spike in that because school districts and libraries buy those books. And so the more teachers are teaching diverse texts in their classroom, the more the more librarians are insisting that those be part of their collection, the more publishers are like, ah, we're selling, you know, a, a, you know, thousand, two thousand copies of this book every year. Let's keep it in print and let's get more books like this. That's what needs to happen. You need, have, need to see that demand. And it happens easier for children's for books for kids because kids are in school and, and schools need books in order to teach kids liter- to be literate. Now, something that I've been so curious about is literacy that, you know, we have kids more often than not, there's not literature that's speaking to them. So they do know how to read, which kind of combats the illiteracy problem. But something that I've noticed more and more as time has gone on is the illiteracy problem. So for people who don't know what illiteracy is, it's people who know how to read, who just have no will or desire to even do that activity. What is your take on that? Because it's something that I think is kind of one of the real big things that libraries should be tackling, that places that are teaching, let's just even go so far as high school should be kind of 
re-correcting that course because in elementary and middle school, you're put into this, uh, what we, what I call the AR system, which is an accelerated reading system that literally is a reward system. But once you remove the reward system, then you're put into a, well, you read this or you fail. And that creates a whole nother set in the high school college area where I feel is the real big reason for illiteracy. You're putting, you're putting pressure where before there was reward. Yeah. Well, and not only that, um, you could say that the problem is even with the AR program, all these things are, it's a mistake after mistake after mistake. So the, the, at the very beginning, you, you bring the child into school. The kid is usually pretty excited about reading. Um, I was the bilingual ESL director at Donna ISD for several years. And you go into these, uh, you know, pre-K, kinder, first grade classes where kids are like learning to read for the first time and their teachers using the big books and reading and kids are all enthusiastic about it. There, obviously, there's some kids that still struggle. That is usually because school districts are making the huge mistake of taking a child who speaks only Spanish and trying to jump over a bunch of steps and make them start reading English. When language acquisition shows us that you have to teach the child how to read in that child's native language first as you're teaching them to listen and speak in the second language. And once they've learned how to read in their native language and they've learned to listen and speak in the new language, then the reading skills just transfer over. But there are very few school districts in the Valley who do that because, and it's just really depressing because we're like Mexican Americans, but everybody's got this idea of, I know it's gotta be sink or swim. When I was in school, I know, I mean, I'm enseñaron a leer en español, que pendejada, I'm just going to teach them, like, we're going to, we're going to ignore what all research says. You, that's one of the reasons I don't, that's why, one of the reasons I left on ISD, because nearly every principal was a fucking moron and didn't understand this. And yes, hi, principals, Donna ISD, you're morons. Um, <laughs> the title of the episode, Donna <laughs> ISD, y'all are morons. Like, oh my God, no. Because they don't want to accept, it's like, they know better than like hundreds and hundreds of specialists who've done research and they know how language is acquired, whatever. It seems like magic to them. They're like, what? How, what do you mean teaching them how to read in Spanish is gonna help them to read in English? It's just reading. Well, once you learn how to decode and comprehend and do inferencing in one language, you can do it in any other language you learn. It's not magic. It's just the way the brain works. And I can agree with that because recently what I have started to do is I've started reading um, just because I'm trying to get better at my Spanish speaking because uh -huh. I've started reading books in Spanish that I initially read in English. That's smart. So I have that kind of like, and I also grab a dictionary, but it's kind of like to go back and be like, okay, like, oh, this is where this story is going. And yeah. it's one of those things that, that literature is such a big deal for me. But it's something that is not so, not that it's not widely regarded, but it's over time, it almost feels like a luxury. It's necessary to have people for critical thinking. It's necessary for critical thinking. And what, what you've just described is what we call predictable text. And it's one of the best things you could do for a child who's learning a second language is give them, and it's one of the reasons that I would, with middle grade students, I would use stories of lechuzas, la mano pachona, la llorona, just all these, whatever, like spooky, scary things that I had grew up hearing about and write them into short stories because the kids knew what was going to happen. So they could, rather than focusing on like, you know, oh shit, what's going to happen in this book? And I need to like, 
you're like trying to, you know, guess and, 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 and so forth um, and predict, they can just focus on enjoying the story and digging deep into it and analyzing it and doing the kind of critical thinking that is necessary and predict, you know, so predictable text is really good in that way. But what we do is kids are excited. We, we screw around with bilingual education. We don't do it right, but still kids are excited about learning to read. And then we bring in state testing in third grade. And basically we turn reading when midway through second grade, we're like, and next year is star. I'm sorry. There was a fly in front of the screen. So don't, I'm not like slapping you virtually. Pass, Veronique, pass. <laughs> so what, you know, midway through second grade, they're, they're all like, okay, next year is the star exam. And so now reading becomes a chore and reading becomes a scary thing because if you don't pass that star and you know, like this. And so it becomes something horrifying and fearful for them and something that becomes a rote and they do star passages and they practice answering questions and reading gets completely disconnected from its real value, as you said, and its entertainment value and its, its value in like, you know, encouraging critical thinking about human interaction and ideas and stuff like that. So you say they know better. A lot of people treat bilingual education and people who are bilingual I mean, I think that's the best way to describe it, that everyone else knows better because they have a piece of paper that says they know better. And from what I'm going to understand, you also um, write screenplays. Does that kind of tie back into the issue of representation? Because people think that they know better because they have this high position, because they know what will sell. So they, yeah. you know, the situation with American Dirt and, you know, how they rolled that out. Like, they know what they're doing, so you guys need to take a back seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you you little rural, like me, like, when I go into a room like that, I'm from a as far as if they look at Donna on the map, they're like, Oh shit. That's like this little itty bitty town, like right on the border. Like this guy is, he has no, he's, he has, he's not going to have any urbanity. He's going to have, he's not going to have a metropolitan way of looking at the world. He's going to be, you know, a rural Mexican American. Things like corn. Like you're yeah. going to look at fields of corn field. You're just going to be looking at fields and going, Oh, look at me with my yeah, fields. Yeah. But, I don't but, understand just, business. <laughs> So insulting. Listen to the two of us. I'm sorry, but I would put the two of us up against anybody in any major city in this country. We are we grew up in this area, went to school here. We are products of schooling and of the culture of this area. And I dare say we can hold a, a candle to anybody in our respective industries. We are as, as intelligent, as insightful, as creative as anybody else, and maybe even more so because we're also bilingual and bicultural and, and, and biliterate. And, and th these things add another layer to our understanding of the world and give us access to things that other people don't have access to who grow up monolingual, monocultural. They're like people who, who are deeply ignorant about things, assuming they know more than everybody else. And everybody else is like looking at each other going, these dumb bastards think that they know more than we do about <laughs> exactly. our own culture and about like what we would consume as members of this community. Like we know what we like. Why are mm -hmm. you getting a white director to direct a film that you're marketing for Mexican Americans, for example? Why would you not trust people from the community itself to create content or be the, at least the leaders of the creation of content for people. Like I mean, it, it feels so throttled because, uh, and, and I say this because, you know, we have a few 
and I say this with all the love in my heart because I do, you know, I do love Guillermo del Toro. I do love Salma Hayek. I do love the stuff that Eva Longoria has done. I mean, my God, like Dora the Explorer is going to be a cult classic. I'm telling you right now, because that was just hilarious. The way they, I understood that the surrounding was fantastical because you have to still ground it in the Dora the Explorer world for the people yeah. who grew up with it or the people who had to babysit people who grew up with it. <laughs> so I'm just saying you that now. Children who grew up with yes, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but but the way that they blended, you know, the 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 Latinness without seeming trite, without seeming tropey was hilarious. It was so good. And it so I see all of these different things, but it feels so throttled. Because yeah. most of these people, George Lopez, Eva, Selma, Guillermo del Toro, um, the gentleman who, who directed Roma, you know, all these people, it's like I could count them on two on like two hands. It's so small. The the amount of more bigger named household named directors that are Mexican or Latinx. And that is just it's frustrating. And, and you notice that most of the people that you named, with the exception of like George Lopez, most of them are not Mexican-American. And a, a whole a big chunk of the people that you named are actually from Mexico. Like we're having to import one, like, you know, there are millions upon millions of Mexican-Americans here in this country. And like like you, I love all of those people and love all their work as well. But I'd really like to see Mexican-American get a little more recognition. Right, and Mexican-Americans even. Like there, there's just so many stories Sure, sure, broadly. But I mean, I, I will say this, and I mean, with all uh, the, the love and affection I have for all my Latinx uh, siblings, in the underrepresentation, like competition, if we want, <laughs> in the Olympics of underrepresentation, Mexican Americans, because we constitute like more than 75% of U.S. Latinx people, we are underrepresented even in the little sliver that is for Latin for Latinx people. So, Or an Asian director for a movie about Latinx people. Yes, yeah, like the, in the Heights, right? So, so what's your take? So I'm curious, given, well, given I'm, your... I'm, I'm in Hollywood right now trying, fighting this fight uh, with, in a couple of different projects. Like, So I'm working with uh, Diego Molano on... Victor and Valentino for Cartoon Network, you know, doing story, you know, story um, advising and, and 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 other types of cultural stuff. Um, I've been trying to get a a series based on my book uh, Border Lore off the ground for like five years, um, and like we came this close. We had all the funding. We had a showrunner set up. We had everything. It was going to be on El Rey, and then they, El Rey just went, and so we're like, yeah, all right. So I mean. Um, and, and there are so many Mexican-Americans, so many Latinx projects in development hell right now. And every time you see, it's exciting to see, you know, so-and-so's book gets optioned and da-da-da-da-da. But I also know, because I've had books optioned, that having a book option sounds really Doesn't cool. But, it, you know, there are, it, it could be decades before that that book ever makes it to the screen or it could be like, you know, the next, the following year. I mean, some things that get fast-tracked if they're, if it's like a particular I don't know, like social touchstone or, or whatever. It, it, mm-hmm. it can it can be big, but so I've seen few episodes of Victor and Valentino, and I was yeah. gonna ask, what is your involvement with the show? Given the topics, because as soon as I saw what the topic was, and then I saw your name attached to it, I'm like, that makes sense. I'm like, <laughs> I was like, I'm like that that correlates yeah. with this so, man. For people who don't know about the show, it, it's it's set in this like 
strange town called Monte Macabre and then like magical things happen and then there everybody appears to be Mexican or Mexican American but there are like obviously things that are connected to like Mesoamerican peoples involved and bit by bit you begin to discover that essentially like everybody in this town is a god is an Aztec or Maya god that's what is getting like slowly revealed and so, um, Diego, that's probably a spoiler. Spoiler, sir. spoiler alert, spoiler <laughs> alert, spoiler <laughs> alert, everyone. He said it. I'm sorry. It. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at him. Don't tell your children. Just don't let the little kids know. But like for adults, it's, I think it's kind of obvious. And so they brought me in towards the end of the, the third season to start doing some like story consulting and, and cultural consulting, because as this reality of things gets revealed and then the identities of all these different characters is revealed as different gods, there are episodes where they travel back in time and they're in Tenochtitlan and all they, they need somebody who can like help the writers to like grapple with these elements and do it in a respectful way. And so like, cause that's kind of like one of my multiple cups of tea. That's, that's my, that's my cup of cacao. That's my cup of, of spicy chocolate. Uh, it's not tea. Yeah. <laughs> um, spicy Aztec chocolate. They, they brought me on board to do that. And so, you know, I've worked with them and worked with like the voice actors on pronouncing Nahuatl and stuff like that. So it's, it's a fun thing. Um, I was also involved with the canceled, unfortunately, because of COVID, Cortez versus Moctezuma miniseries that Steven Spielberg's company, Amblin, was doing with Amazon. And because oh, yeah. the scripts are written in English... But they were mm-hmm. it, they wanted to film it in Spanish and in Nahuatl. I translated all the scripts for all these episodes. It was only four episodes, but they're like so. It's like four hours of scripts translated. No, but that's in. a lot. That's a yeah. lot of translating. I'm I'm not even gonna lie. Your brain and must have been like this, like just oh beating God. across the skull. And I got to see like all the images of the sets that they were building. I got, I got to go out to, to Hollywood and meet like Javier Bardem and, and all these really awesome people. Um, and I was going to be like on set during 2020, like helping, you know, with dialect coaching and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then pandemic hit, they had to postpone filming and then it kept getting postponed, postponed until they were like, we just can't make this anymore. And Amazon pulled out. So, <sighs> Ah, oh, la tristeza, la tristeza. <laughs> I'm trying to rem- recall because I, I haven't uh, kept up with Victor and Valentino uh, past past a certain point. But is that right. show still currently going? And are you still yeah, working still with them going. on and yeah. off? Okay, yep. yeah, because yep. I, I I'm going to tell you right now for anybody that that has has kept up with how Cartoon Network changed. The way they release shows is so different than probably the way it was 10 years ago, where it was like, okay, you had, it, it felt like a, like a Grey's Anatomy or, or like any other show where there was a season, you started at the fall, you ended, you know, just like all the other fall shows. Now it's like 10 episodes, then you wait like four or five months and then another 10 episodes. Like it's not all together. No, so it feels really weird. <laughs> it feels like if I, when I was watching Steven Universe, it was like, you kind of obviously we had to like be plugged into the Steven Universe community online to really know because nobody uses TV the way we used to. Um, so, but also like you just usually you have like whatever like An you app. have the spectrum, you have, you have the app, and you just eventually you're like, oh shit, I missed all those episodes. Well, let me mm-hmm. like I'll just binge them this Sunday or whatever. So I mean, we have ways of consuming and shows. 
differently. Now, now that you're so evolved and en- enmeshed in that aspect, what is something that like prior to working on all of these projects, what was your favorite cartoon or animated film? Mm, oh my God. Well, I mean, that's, that's really hard because I like love cartoons and animated films. Um, if you had to pick like three that just right off the top of your head, you're like, Oh, okay. this one, okay. this one, this all one, right. as soon as all I right, said right. it. So, so, so spirited away. <laughs> well, I mean like the, the top three that I think of are all like, Japanese films by the same director, but I, I won't do that. I'll go, I'll say, okay, Spirit no, no, Away. No, 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 you can't. I'm curious. I'm curious where you're going to go with Miyazaki <laughs> now. Because I, like, I know where you're away. going now. <laughs> I like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke. So that's two from the same director. But then I probably say, um, like, Ghost in the Shell. That's nice. Ghost in the Shell is pretty awesome. Um, Akira is like, just because they're like shows from like when I was a, a, a teen or in my early 20s when I really got into like anime and manga and stuff like that. Um, so I, I either like American animated films, like whatever. I'm not as excited about them as I am about like Japanese films. It's much, much more. So I'm like, curious. Have you, have you checked out, heard of, or seen Trese? Trese? T-R-E-S-E. Yes, I have heard of it, but I have not seen it yet. Did you recommend it to me or what? Yes. I will. For anyone that is like, if you're into Ghost in the Shell, if you're into Hell Girl, which is another, uh, another kind of like um, sci-fi anime but like there's like a, a almost like a cult like a corporate type it's not corporate i'm sorry the best way to describe it is it's like a buffy the vampire slayer kind oh, of totally. show also kind of like castlevania not in the style but just in in the way they kind of are defeating monsters or they are monsters themselves mm-hmm. so you're kind of dealing with that but dress is really interesting and from what i'm to understand it's a it's a filipino kind of buffy the vampire slayer vibed type of um story that was a graphic novel and then got optioned as you said it got optioned and then actually went through to actually being produced and made and so at any point because i know right now you know um are you currently focused on a particular type of writing at this moment in time you know style in the sense of you're focused on young adult literature are you pushing yourself more to um more adult literature so this year i've got um I'm going to continue to write for all age groups. This year, my sci-fi series, uh, The Path, launched, and the first three books are coming out this year. So book one came out already. Book two is coming out um, in July, July 13th, and book three is coming out in November. Um, these are books that I, I had written a decade ago, but have I have like revamped and so forth, and now they're finally being published through Castlebridge Media. And it's they're pretty cool, and they, they focus at 700 years in the future, and basically it's these independent worlds that have been settled by what we would consider communities of color, um, finding a way to break the back of the corporate capitalist government that runs the rest of humanity. It's still like run by, basically people have evolved beyond white hegemony. Um, most uh, white nations were destroyed um, by an ice age that gripped Earth. But corporate capitalism has still survived, and it is like the governing system. And these independent worlds find a way to like to stop it from being the the way humanity is progressing forward, and to find a new path forward. So it's like it's a lot of politics and philosophy and religion and things like that. But also, each book has like a, like a love story at the heart of it, and stuff like that. So that series that's definitely very adult. It's in there. There. It's there, it's a massive space opera, kind of like um, the Expanse books that my my friend Ty Frank co-authored. Um, so like each book is like one hundred fifty thousand words and multiple points of view. It's like huge books. 
Um, but I'm also like I started this um, graphic novel series called Clockwork Curandera that's coming out in October. It sounds like Clockwork Orange. I'm so curious as to what that is now. Yeah, so Clockwork Curandera is like um, it's like taking all these tropes from from manga and anime that I love so much. And like, so she's an apprentice curandera. Her name is Christina. It's like 1865 in an alternate world where Northern Mexico and Southern Texas are a Republic called Santander, the Republic of Santander, La República de Santander. And she's an apprentice shaman and she gets attacked by lechuzas. You can see the lechuzas like looming in the background and they leave her for dead. They like sever her legs and one of her arms and her brother Enrique, who's an alchemist brings her back to life. So she is a clockwork curandera. She is a mechanical, like, robot, you know, cyborg curandera. And together with their friend, uh, Mateo, who's a, a shapeshifter in Nahual, they begin to delve into, like, the mystery of, uh, like, why this happened. Where are these lechuzas from? Why are they attacking Santander and so forth? Um, and so it's kind of like a, it's a retooling of the Frankenstein story. It's illustrated by Raul Gonzalez, um, who's this amazing illustrator and this is just an advanced review copy so it doesn't have the color but the book is mainly in like sepia as if it were published in like in the early 20th century on one of those broad streets but it has like spot color that like pops out like red and green stuff like that it's it's a really really cool um graphic novel um that i think and it's it's a series so this is book one and then there'll be two more books in the series so i'm like doing a lot of that i'm doing Graphic novel stuff. I'm, I'm, you're busy. I mean, I thought yeah, I was busy, but you're busy. You're booked and busy. I'm also like uh, the my friend Guadalupe Garcia McCall, who's from um, Eagle Pass, Piedras Negras. She and I co-wrote an, a book last summer, and we've sold it, although we haven't made the announcement yet. And we sold it in a two-book deal, um, and so we're writing the other book. And these are both like YA paranormal romances that are rooted in... Part of the story is set in contemporary times, and part of it is set in the past in Mexico. So the first book is partly set in the siege of Tenochtitlan, and partly set in, in the present day. And then um, the second book is it is not really set in in the the past, but it's rooted in Toltec society of a thousand years ago. But they're both like you you can imagine like um, something like Twilight, but like Mexican American and using like. Aztec and Mayan um, and Toltec connections. They're going to be great. People are going to love those. And I'm really, really hoping that they could option to films because I, they would make great films, I think. Um, so, so Estudio Tlali, um, and I, I don't know if I said it right. So Estudio Tlali yeah. and the Path Grant, are they named after the book series? Are they named after the books? Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to do with the path, because the main characters too are the ones who are actually like making the change happen are all women of color. Um, and they're featured on the, the, the covers of the book or whatever. And one of the things I want to do is to take all the proceeds from the sale of the book, all, all the royalties that I would get and create a grant with them to lift up women writers of speculative fiction who are from communities of color. And so like all my royalties are going into it. And then also we're going to do like a fundraising uh, drive and, and connect with other um, organizations who want to, to participate in this. And we're going to award multiple $2,500 prizes to, to women uh, of color who write speculative fiction, who write science fiction, fantasy, horror, or whatever, right? Because it, it's hard. It is hard to be a woman of color in speculative fiction. It's one of the hardest things to, like, everybody expects you to be writing for children or by writing romance. And if you're like, I want to write, like, fantasy, I want to write about, like, you know, like, robots and shit, and people are like, oh, maybe. And so, uh, I, a little bit extra money. <laughs> maybe not. Little, yeah. 
and the other thing that that we're that Estudio Tlali is going to do. Um, so Loba, um, the who's my daughter, and she's like the main force behind Estudio Tlali, is going to be editing an anthology of women authors from communities of color. And what's basically what's going to happen is women who apply for this grant, who submit, like a sample of their writing and stuff like that for for the grant. Among them, she will invite maybe all of them, or like just depending on like how much will fit in an anthology, she will in, send out invitations to people, even th- those who don't receive an award, to be in, to submit something for this anthology, which will be called Rooted Futures, and that'll come out in the summer of next year. Applications are open right now for people through like um, mid October, and then in December the 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 awardees are selected. They get notified to get their money by the beginning of January, and then we'll be. Lobo will be working on editing the book. It'll be published also by Castlebridge Media, who puts out the path. And so we just want to use it as a way, because I, I frankly, I feel certain that our only way forward as like a species is for the women that have been, you know, sidelined and oppressed and silenced for so many centuries to be given more of a control over the over the fate of our communities and of our species because clearly men clearly white men especially have done a really lousy job of managing things up to this point i would i would argue um and and i just think that their voices are important um in like imagining like new futures and new ways forward new ways of being um and i want to do everything i can from my position of of privilege as you know, like a, a white presenting man, uh, cis man, not het. <laughs> you know that little emoji, the little wallet with the little wings on it just flying away? That's me right now. I'm the advertiser. This is an ad for me. Veronique, go listen to my album. I have two out right now, Crying and La Novela off of Next Gen Latinx Records. All jokes aside, please go listen to the music on your favorite streaming platform or buy it online at veroniquemedrano.com. And I mean it. Go listen to it. Go listen to it at your mom's house. Because, I mean, if you don't listen to her, at least listen to me. And that's been your paid ad. I guess something that I was so curious about, because I know I saw it on on social media, and, and I saw it, and I... I didn't see too much after that, but I know that there was conversations between you and Medium and everybody, almost like a, this is like six months later, what has happened since the big kerfuffle online yeah, yeah. that led to Dignidad Literaria, that led to these meetings, that led to a more present push for representation. And you, if I'm correct, you pa- you stated that while there has been some change, um, a lot of the things that were promised did not come to fruition the way you'd hoped about six months later, as was promised. And I guess the the plan and the statement that was released, can you kind of go go over that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we, we were taking stock. It was um, it was like it was a year from our initial meeting and six months from like when they had, you know, finally like supposedly implemented uh, or were initially meant to have implemented the plan that they came up with from our initial meeting. They had 30 days to come up with the plan. I mean, 90 days to come up with the plan and then they were to implement it during the, towards the end of that year. And so it was taking stock. And I mean, obviously one of the things that's used as an excuse by publishers is the pandemic. They're like, we weren't expecting this. You can't possibly hold us to, to what we agreed to when we had to like scramble and do all these things 
Um, and then there's a paper shortage too. And like, you know, everybody comes up with excuses and, and we wanted to report to people that look, yes, they did do some things. They hired some Latinx editors. They've, they're publishing a few more Latinx titles, but it's still like a drop in the bucket. There's still so much more that needs to be done and we've got to all continue pushing and applying pressure in multiple ways. And so like one of the things is, I, you know, I have conversations with Congressman Castro all the time. He, for a while, was heading up the, the um, Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And so we were like working with them through him to p- apply pressure on publishing. Because what, what needs to happen is the government needs to apply pressure on publishing. When I was a little kid, they broke up Ma Bell into all these smaller telephone companies because they had just gotten too big and it's had too much power and could make people pay an, an, an exorbitant amount of money. And I think something like that needs to happen. We need to have some kind of, and not just in publishing, but like also in Hollywood and all the other spheres like social media, there needs to be like antitrust legislation of some sort put into place because all these companies have just gotten too big and they have too much power. It's too easy for them to exclude entire groups of people and to funnel funds, you know, just behind certain projects, whatever. And in order to have equity, we need to have, some of that broken down. So is the PATH grant a response to that final, you know, taking stock? And is that kind of along with, you know, your daughter, the, yeah. the kind of impetus like, okay, we gave you guys the time, you have unlimited funds and limited resources, and you still fell short. So I'm not yeah. going to wait for you. The reality is we have to do multiple things. And it's really unfair that all the onus is on people from these communities of color that we belong to. It's unfair that Latinx people have to be the ones to figure out the solution. But like, we literally can't just sit around waiting for them. We need to continue pressuring them. I'm not going to People are like, let's just give up on them, whatever. I'm like, I'm not leaving all those millions of dollars on that table. Hell no. Uh uh-uh. I'm going to continue demanding a place at that table. And I'm going to continue getting more and more people in the door. I've like multiple, I've mentored multiple authors and helped them to get agents and helped them to get to navigate the like ridiculous labyrinthine way into traditional publishing. And I will continue doing that and continue pressuring them. But we also have to do other things. And so, you know, flower song books, the path initiative, all these um, ways to chip away at the problem. Uh, it, it is incumbent on me, the more success I have, to continue giving back to the community and continue finding new ways of lifting up voices of people who haven't quite gotten there. I mean, it took me a long ass time. I mean, my first book was published when I was 40 years old. Um, and, and I know how horribly disheartening it can be to like try to make your way into that world when you are, you're from a community that exists outside of it. And so as much as I possibly can, I want to provide support to people. But I'm also going to continue fighting the, you know, the literary dignity fight against these giants. They, they need because I'm going to continue publishing books with them. I'm not going to like again. I'm telling you, you know, way they had those Lana. No way. You know, <laughs> You're like I'm not going to leave all that money there. It somebody it, needs to take it. It's going to be me. Yeah, <laughs> we deserve some of that. Like you know, and it, mm-hmm. it's not. And the thing is, it's, you know, it's not like um, the pie can continue to grow. I mean, we live in a capitalist society. There, you know, the more authors from these underrepresented groups that get published, the more people from those underrepresented groups are going to be, are going to tend to read more because they're going to find mm-hmm. representation in those books. And it, it could snowball into something good for everybody. You, you guys want to make money? You're going to make money off of me. And they've realized that now. That's why I continue to have like I, so many books coming out this year. It's ridiculous. I had 12 books that came out this year. That are coming out this year. Some of them are translations. Awesome. Some, of them are, you know, my de- my debut children's book is coming out from Penguin uh, in August. This graphic novel, my three adult ones, my two more of the books in my Thirteenth Street series for 
for like young kids. Like I've got a lot of books coming out because my books sell because people want to read stuff written by Mexican Americans. People want to read content about Mexican American culture. It sells. Like you were talking about within the Heights and Coco and stuff like that. We have purchasing power. We, you know, we, we go to the box office. We love horror films. We love, you know, romance. It's weird. It's weird that in the Heights. So let's just take a look at it. Coco was lauded. There wasn't anyone, you know, going after it, attacking it, anything like that. It was lauded, applauded, and celebrated. I can definitely agree that there was a very good reason for that. But I think in the Heights, it immediately, within a few days of it really being released, because it wasn't right at the start, you started hearing rumblings of something going on with a lot of the reviewers. But then soon after, a lot of Latinx people. And I, and I feel that maybe that's the big difference, is that, you know, Coco was really made for Mexicanos. Yeah. And it knew what it was. It knew what it was, and it made sure to be genuine and um, clear on that it was not trying to create a trope. It, I mean, I didn't really see a whole lot of trope outside of the chancla. Like, there was a yeah. few things in there that made me laugh, but it wasn't riddled well, in t- tropes. I will tell you this. I know a whole bunch of stuff about Coco because I'm good friends with the cultural consultants that were brought in to stop it from being the train wreck that it was about to be. Like, you, yes. if you remember... At the very beginning, Disney wanted to call it the Day of the Dead, and they wanted they to wanted copy- to copyright the Dia de los Muertos. There were no Mexican people involved at all, and so eventually they brought yeah, in Lalo, Lalo Alcaraz. Yes, and and uh, um and a couple other of my friends who together, you know, there was like these three different groups of consultants that came together, Lalo and two other groups, and they steered them clear of the mistakes that they were going to make. And then they brought in a co-director and all that stuff. So the origins of that are different. And so then there was this concerted effort to bring in presented, uh, presented.org. They were the ones who the, the, the organization that I was telling you about that their representative was with us at that meeting. They got lots of sig- signatures um, kind of, you know, going against what Disney was doing. And so, you know, that was corrected and it was, you know, it was fixed and, and whatever. And it isn't, you know, it, it's a fantasy world. It isn't an actual depiction of Mexican Americans or Mexican, you know, it's not a depiction of a real place. Yeah, exactly. It's just and, a depiction of, of like real culture. people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like that's, that's kind of like, and, and I say people kind of questioningly because you're trying to represent a group of people in a completely different way than, oh, we're refugees, oh, we're this, oh, we're that. Like, like this was truly trying to create a fantasy world that you could relate to. But in the but Heights... The hand, in the Heights, of course, gets to start as a musical, like a stage musical. And then, you, you know, each one of those iterations of the stage musical had different people playing the roles. And a lot of those had a lot more Afro-Dominicanos. Yes, than Afro-Latinos than, than the actual movie. And that was what the pushback was about. And so I'm not Dominican. I have friends who are Dominicanos, but I'm not Dominican and I can't really speak to it. But if you're a Dominicano living in Brooklyn Heights and living in the neighborhood in which this thing is filmed, I can understand you getting like salty if it's not good representation. Like I don't live there and I don't know, but I trust my Dominican friends who are like, eh, it's good, but it could have been better. Yeah. And, and I'm getting that a lot. Like a lot of, a lot of Puerto Ricanos, a lot of Dominicans, because this, uh, this was what I will say once again, the reason why Coco was successful and did what it did was because it knew what it was doing 
And it had people consulting who knew how to be like, okay, let's not do X, Y, Z because it doesn't match with this in the Heights. Yes. It was a a musical. Yes. In the musical version, it featured more Afro Latinos, but you know, for it to come out and for Afro Latinos to be secondary characters, not even like primary characters, where most of the folks were Puerto Ricano and were fair-skinned Puerto Ricanos, you know, um, it, it, yeah, it, I can understand. It no, it, it's understandable why there's such a pushback. But now you're getting like, well, why did Lin Manuel have to apologize? Why did these people have to say anything? And it's because at the end of the day, it was still your work. Yeah, yeah, he has to apologize. Uh, they they eliminated the uh, the subplot from the original stage production about anti blackness and all of that. Uh, that yeah. So there there's like this subplot. Um, I can't remember the name of the character, but it's like an old, one of the older characters, somebody's uncle, who expresses anti black sentiment, and it's grappled with in the original version, and that was cut from the film. And so, like that, for people who've seen the stage version and see the film and see, it, it just so they're two different things. They feel they f- they don't even feel like they have the same essence. Right, right. And so, I mean, it, and it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. And but I mean, that's that's the issue when when you go from this fantasy world that is you know self-contained and you know it's not an actual town. It doesn't have to show. You know, you don't know what when it's happening. There are anachronisms and it could be happening in the 50s or it could be happening in the 80s or maybe in the present day. But like nobody has any cell phone. Anyway, so it's like this weird kind of like this fantasy cartoon world, whereas in the Heights, even though obviously it's heightened and there are fantasy elements because a musical or whatever is set in a particular place where actual people live who look a certain way. Then obviously there's going to be pushback when if you don't get it right. And that's you know what? It's OK not to get things right. As long as you own up to it afterwards. Nothing is going to be perfect. I mean, we could even go so far as to say, like, Coco wasn't perfect because it, it ended up getting criticism for reinforcing, you know, the immigration, you know, Border Patrol kind of vibe uh, very clearly in one of the main elements of the movie, which is how, um, spoiler alert, how the characters get across to go to the Gand of the Living. It's literally a border crossing. Like, the whole point of it is to depict a border crossing and you have to be not legalized, but you have to be authorized to go across. And, and that's just, yeah, that was one of those, like, yes, it was funny, but I can understand people feeling a way about that. So, um, finally, because this is such a, this is a word that we've used many times throughout this podcast that you use yourself. What is your understanding of the term Latinx and why is there such contention you feel in the community in regards to it? Because I do know that you have a very extensive amount of experience online and in person with people getting upset over the use of the word Latinx. So if you can kind of educate us on what that word actually is. When we think about taking the word Latino and making it Latinx or Latinx, the problem that it's addressing is the final vowel, right? It's it's the, the fact that in Spanish, when you're talking about people in general, you have to refer to them in the masculine. I mean, there are ways to get around it when you're speaking Spanish. Like you could say gente Latina instead of los Latinos. La gente Latina. There are ways you could arrange your language so that you're using um, different gender. 
But the queer community in the U.S., queer Latinx people grappling with language in like the 90s and early 2000s, trying to find ways to talk about themselves as members of this community who are often not accepted by the community or let's, well, let's just be honest, seldom accepted by the community, right? Just seldom. Like I grew up as a pansexual, you know, teen in, in deep South Texas. And it's not the easiest thing in the world. You stay in the closet, you keep your mouth shut because, you know, coming out is, was like, I, well, my, one of my uncles came out. I have, a, I have a story in this upcoming anthology called Living Beyond Borders. It's coming out in, in August that grapples with this, that kind of retells and fictionalizes my experience with this, but like I had an uncle who came out and he was ostracized. He had to like leave and go to Austin because he would have been beaten by my primos and, and my other deals. Like you just didn't do it. You, you know, I mean, I mean, it was like, that's the end of the world for people in some of our communities. Things have gotten better, but there is like this vicious, vicious thread of queer media, of homophobia in the Latinx community. And so U.S. queer Latinx people looking for some kind of way to refer to themselves that didn't impose gender and that kind of that was, um, you know, an, uh, a term that would be non-binary and, and just like free of all these other things came across the, the, the notion of putting an X instead. It had happened on signs throughout Latin America during protests in the 70s and 80s, whatever. You know, you have a sign that said, you know, Los Ciudadanos, instead of saying Los Ciudadanos, radical feminists would like cross out the O's with the next. And so like mm. that kind of thing, it just had, it was just like part of the, of the counterculture that like, you know, 80, 90% of Hispanics don't know anything about because they don't pay attention to that because I, ah, it's those rattles. It's on those. Los not only that, but I mean, I didn't, e I didn't even know that. Like, I'm going to tell you right now, I did not know that aspect of the history that, you know, like that it was already part of. Yeah, yeah, it was already part of like, like radical, like, um, you know, protest and stuff like that it was to X things out um, in Argentina, the Dominican Republic and places like that. It had been happening for a long time. And so and then, of course, the, the use of the X in radical American politics as well was people like yeah. Malcolm. So there's this notion of you use an X to radicalize and differentiate things. And so, you know, people started using it in Latin America. People, um, most people that I know who use it, pronounce it Latine. And even sometimes now they usually just write it with an E instead of with an X uh, because yeah. an E is not neither an O or an A. And it can, it's a, it's a vowel that can, can feel non-gendered. So people who push back against it, who are like, don't be calling me Latinx. Like nobody's calling you Latinx. People are calling themselves Latinx or they're referring to the group of people that includes queer the Hispanic, queer yeah, the queer community and the straight community. And they're referring to using the term that doesn't exclude the queer community. But of course, people have a problem with that. Just like they have a problem with queer folks themselves, with queer folks, with us, queer folks. Right. Um, and um, and so there's a lot of pushback. And, and the thing that I hear again and again by people, People who are, are frankly bad faith actors who are trying to trying to make it sound like they are populist or whatever. They're like the majority of of gente, the majority of raza does not use that term, and so imposing it on them isn't fair. The problem is the majority of raza and the majority of gente reject people who are not you know mainstream you know. Family first, Catholic, relatively conservative, although in some political matters they're, you know, left-leaning. Uh, There's I'm not moderate. Gonna, yeah, there are. I'm not, I'm not going to let them dictate. You know, I grew up in a religious household. My dad 
converted from Catholicism to evangelical Christianity when I was seven and became a pastor at the church of Westlaco. And I grew up in that kind of oppressive environment. I'm not going to allow, you know, religious Hispanics who have conservative views about identity and sexuality, whatever, dictate to me the term that we should be using communally. They don't want to call themselves Latin. They don't have to. Like, literally, nobody is telling them. And that's an argument that I have all the time. I said, look, I mean, I don't even... I don't identify as Latino. I identify as a Mexican-American and Latinx. That's kind of where well, I'm at I see, because, I see, because you're I'm You're dropping Latino altogether. Oh, I like that. Yeah, no, I, like, I just drop Latino altogether. And mind you, when I craft online messages, I still use Latino from time to time and Latinx right. because I don't know who I'm speaking to um, right. when I'm referring when I'm referring outwards. But when I refer to myself, I always refer as Mexican-American and Latinx and, you know, or Mexicana, like or Chicana. Uh, Chicano, right. you know, I, I use those as well. You know, those are kind of the outliers, just depending on the group of people, because we're code switching. At the end of the day, the words are literally just code switching for who yeah. you're with or what you're trying to get across for who you are in the situation. I, you know what I do? I tell I tell people who get really insistent. I go, why don't you just pretend that I speak a different dialect of Spanish than you do? Who <laughs> comes to the valley and they're all like, oh, uh, oye, chico, I can cambiar la bombilla. And you're like, you're like, Oh, and foco. Quieres cambiar el foco? You don't get mad because they say bombilla instead of foco. Like, whatever. It's a light bulb. They have one word. I have another word. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting way to, to do it because it's the truth. At the end of the day, it is the truth. It's just a different language. So I tell them, just imagine that I speak a dialect of Spanish in which we have this this E ending um, or X ending if, if I'm if I'm code switching in English and, and Spanish and then just translate in your head. Every time I say Latinx, if you prefer Hispanic, translate it to Hispanic in your head. Why is it so hard? Why are you trying to police the way I speak? I'm not telling you not to call yourself Hispanic. I'm not even, and people are like, well, I am a Mexican-American. I'm not Latinx. And I go, of course you're Mexican-American. I'm Mexican-American too. My primary identifier, ethnic identity is Mexican-American or Chicano. I'm a male, I'm, I'm, I'm Chicano. And a lot of the times I think it, there's a real big confusion that Latinx is like a marketing term because now it's used in marketing by white corporations, but, that's before, not, that's, but they weren't that's using not, it before. That's not, that's, not, that's not the fault of any Latinx person. That's just them picking up on it. But people want to flip it around and say, oh, it was invented by white people. Like, no, it wasn't. Like you, you like I, you don't know what you're talking about. It was not. It was invented by queer Latinx people. You don't like either one of those groups, so whatever. I don't want to tell you, but the, the, I say to this <laughs> pretty much like "Tú sabes que vaya con Dios" or yeah, Buddha yeah. or quien quieres. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, but, it's going to be close with the, that type of person. But um, so yeah, so I mean, that's basically what it amounts to. It's it's just one of these umbrella terms that we use to create solidarity, and it, in order for it to be a true umbrella term, it's got to include queer people as well. And queer Latinx mm -hmm. people prefer Latinx or Latina, and Hispanics can be salty about that all day long. Hispanic, like self-proclaimed Hispanics, can be self can be salty about that all day long. But they don't get to choose what queer people call themselves. It's like not their, it's not, you know, it's not whatever. their term. Yeah. And so, like, I, I literally see people who spend all day on Twitter 
respond like i guess they like search for like the word latina yeah they just they search for the keyword and they get all the tweets latino not latinx it's latino it's not you, know, you see like just like click on like the hashtag and see these the same response over and over like, the same person that's the way you're gonna spend your day what the hell get, yeah like, that's none of these terms is perfect none of them they're all fraught and flawed and problematic and if you want to think really hard about it you can find problems with all of them but we use them to find solidarity because we're not the enemy. <laughs> like, why are we fighting each other? The, the enemy is the system in which we live that has oppressed us and made us be underrepresented. And that's the system that we need to collectively be trying to dismantle uh, rather than picking fights with each other over like choice of terminology. We're referring to the same group of people. It's sad. That it's such a and it's funny because honestly I know we say like who would spend their day doing that well my producer does my producer links your article to all those people that spend their day arguing about it they then argue back so I mean people find it uh, it's kind of like what my producer says is that social media at the end of the day is entertainment. If you don't see it as entertainment, then you take it too seriously. Then yeah, yeah, the chingaste. Yeah, the chingaste. And I mean, and it's just a sliver of like real society anyway when things get too intense on twitter i tell people just get off social media and like go walk into your town like i just go like, touch I, the I, grass go touch the damn grass or go, or go down to your like local restaurant and sit there and talk to you know there's a there's a little restaurant called la pasadita like just like half a mile down from my house little like little hole in the wall good food I know the owners, the people who come in, or like the parents of children that I've taught who are now like, you know, have graduated or whatever. And I go in and sit down and have a limonada and some tacos and the people come in and chat with them. And like, if you want to really know what the world is like, talk to the people in your community. Twitter is like this really rarefied. That's why when I get, I start getting pissed off about trolls, stuff like that. And then I think for a second, I go, these are just like people sitting around their house with nothing better to do <laughs> with their time. I can, <laughs> I can either give them my time or I can just like block, block, block. But so I do, I just, I, I've, I don't, I don't fight with them anymore. I fight the big call. So what, so seeing as you're talking about comida, yeah, yo tengo hambre. I'm <laughs> going to go order I, some tacos after this is over. But what is your favorite taco place in the RGV? Ooh, ooh favorite taco place. Mira, I love to go. Okay. So it just depends on what I'm in the mood for. <laughs> okay. I, I love this like very Monterrey kind of food. Um, what that's tostadas de la Siberia. I don't know if you ever had tostadas de la Siberia or tostadas siberianas. I have not. I have not had that. I've wanted to. Big tostada with like smeared with like avocado, shredded chicken breast, and then like cream and queso asadero. Oh my, just so that mm. I, I had it when I lived in the, the first time I ever had it was when I lived in Monterrey. Um, after my wife and I married, we lived down there for like the better part of a year. That's where it was invented, and that's the first place they had it at the original place. And so the one in McAllen is really good. It's I, I, I think it's even called El Restaurante El Siberiano or something like that up on 10th Street. Tacos, tacos. I mainly have tacos here locally. Several little like taco places. You know, it was really interesting. Is like the tacos at La Michoacana Meat Market in in Mercedes are actually pretty good. Like you go in and you're like, you know what? We need. You know what? I need to. I need to take the film crew. And I need to go with you on some tacos, like your, your top three places. And we go because my favorite place, huh? my favorite place is Nana's Taqueria in Mercedes. Oh, my God. That place. The lonches. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In, in they, West they, Africa, they, on, the, on the road to progress. I went there with, yes. uh, with Jose, este, what's his last name? From He writes for Texas Monthly, uh, Ralat, right? Ralat, Ralat. We went to Nana's and, and when he was writing the, them up and we had like tacos and lunches there. Oh my God, so good. That is, that is. So wait, are we going? Yes, we're going to go. We're going <laughs> to invite him. I'm like, okay. We're gonna get together with Veronique. We're gonna like we'll invite like um who can we, who else we can invite? We can invite like I don't know. Let's fi- let's invite all the chismosos and we'll call it the Cheeseman Hour. We'll just call it the Cheeseman Hour. We'll go. <laughs> we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get like a group of like writers that we're friends with. Yes, uh, them to come down. Edward. Edward will get a stay. Um, I love it. Yes, Daniel the Garcia Ordaz will get. Um, oh my God, he's gonna kill me. <laughs> Well, uh, he's going to hear this episode. I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> Javier, delete all of that. We just, we don't name any names. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> bleep, 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 bleep. These all, are all the people we're inviting. Bleep, 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 bleep. All, That's all, the only all, thing we're going to bleep. Yeah. We don't want people to know. <laughs> no, we don't. It's a surprise, y'all. We're well, going to, it's a future episode, but it's a surprise. It's a big ass taquiza at Nana's. <gasps> oh my God. Yes. Big ass. Oh. Oh, okay. But last thing, um, you know, I, I found it so interesting. And I, and as I've done this podcast, I've been talking with different people from different walks of life as I'm going, you know, through this whole, I feel like the pandemic kind of did that to me as well, where I had time to really stop and look inward and really assess myself more than any other time because we're constantly on the go. And so we did a, an episode uh, recently with uh, Laredo Taco Company. There's a production that they came down here. Um, they had asked me, you know, where do you want to film out of? And because there's so many places in the Valley, like I could pick any place, but I really wanted to do something in Brownsville and they wanted to film with me and my grandmother, she turned 90 that week that they were filming. And I got to uh, make tortillas with her on camera. And we got to teach people how to make tortillas. I'm not saying that I made a perfectly circled tortilla. I'm going to tell you that now on camera, lo lo eche bien gacho. But (laughs) the point of it was the experience. And I think situations like these where we start seeing more of ourselves and other people start seeing more of themselves and where they're from in the content that they ingest, you know, whether it's a YouTube video. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, the little old ladies out in Mexico are getting like millions of subscribers is because they're so hungry for that content. They're hungry to be seen and hungry to, to, kind of consume that, you know, the books and, and everything else. And, and I just, I can't wait to see all this stuff you're going to be coming out with David this year, throw me on a list, whatever. If it's a a book club list and I will be more than happy to read and, and review, but honestly, so happy to have just been able to just sit down and talk with you. Um, and just really kind of get into the meat and potatoes of representation in the literary world. And also, you know, the, the Hollywood era space because that's where you're you're now in for those i'm just saying right now if you guys don't know who david bowles is and you're living under a rock you need to, you need to go follow him already <laughs> Ponen atención. Well, i tell you what speaking of representation there's some major tejano music representation in and they call her fregona and um some your, your name is definitely dropped um and uh, uh, yeah, because heart. in the, the sequel to They Call Me Güero, Güero and, and Los Bobbies decide to start a band and they start a Tejano band. Well, they, they're not sure what it's going to be, but it ends up being a Tejano band because they because of something else that happens and they're 
they're trying to like do like a fundraiser to help somebody who's been deported and and this person like really loved like Norteña and, and Tejano music so they decide to start playing Tejano music and among the the bands that they listen to and, and the people that they admire is Veronique Medrano. Oh, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> I admire you. I'm like, coming out in a book. <laughs> I'm gonna go tell my mom. <laughs> and and uh, and so yeah, well, like when when I when I'm finished with that part of it, I'm gonna show it to you just to kind of get your okay on that representation. But I think it's really important. Um, you know, Tejano music was an important part of my life as well. You know, growing up, my my dad taught my brothers and me how to play instruments because he wanted to start like a family Tejano band. <laughs> he was, we were all like, no, because we were like into rock and rap and stuff like that. But he was like, yes. He's like, you guys are going to be the band. new Barrio boys. He taught me how to play the bass and my brother the guitar, my other brother the drums. And he was like, man, nos juntamos, nada más nos falta quien toque la, uh, el acordeón and we'll like be like a you know, family. And I'm like, dad, no, no, we don't. I mean, we love you and all, but we're going to spend all our time playing music with you unless. So who was the Selena in the group? That was, I mean, like all of us could sing. So we weren't sure what it was going to be like. Um, but um, So oh, that already started. There was too many Quintanillas in the kitchen. There, many, <laughs> there was too many. And we didn't, I didn't have a sister. Uh, we only have one female cousin, uh, Christy Perez, and she doesn't sing very well. I don't know. I I just couldn't see her. <laughs> Let's not call. We're going to bleep that out. We're not going to call her out. I'm already the, the oveja negra. There I am, like, like quemando mi familia. Oh, it's not going to go well for me. <laughs> I, oh, my. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> But, you know what, David? Thank you so much. Even, even if they disagree with me. I know we, like, talked probably a lot longer than you had uh, expected to, but it was a lot of fun, and I appreciate you taking time. No, I, I enjoyed this so much. Um, talking with you is always just a breath of fresh air, and you guys will see us again, obviously, but with a whole gaggle of writers and artistic folk from South Texas in a future project. So, um, yeah, guys, thank awesome. you so much. Please make sure to, um, and Fregona is coming out uh, when? Um, do you year. have an idea on that one? Somewhere next year. Somewhere next year. Nice. So uh, make sure to check out Fregona, uh, Summer 2022. And uh, make sure to check out his other books if you uh, haven't checked see, them out already. To this one, they call me Güero. Y así me dicen a mí también. And I, I actually did a Spanish version of this. I, I do, like most of my books, I put them out in English and Spanish because um, I just think it's important. You were talking about before about bilingual people. We need representation as well. So. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys, and have a wonderful day. Puro amor, puro besos, puro tejano. Bye. Thank you for listening to Accordion to Me. The team behind this week's episode includes mixing and editing by Juan Pablo Diaz, theme music by Rodrigo Montalvo, produced by Javi G from MD Media. In-person recordings were done at the Potify Studios and remotely through Riverside FM. Accordion to Me is distributed through Anchor, and you can stream Accordion to Me 